It is good to see each of you here today. Appreciate you coming out and, uh, and being a part of this. We wrapped up our series uh, last week on the Song of Solomon, and today I want to begin a series uh, in 1 John. And uh, I'm going to try to work to help tie these two things together. Uh, the Song of Solomon was a love story about a, a king coming to take for himself a bride. Uh, that bride was undeserving, was, was the woman that nobody dreamed that he would pick and choose, and yet he chose her. It's a picture of God choosing us and the grace of God that applies to our hearts and our lives. And so it's all about uh, uh, him loving us undeservedly and then us giving ourselves freely back to God. Uh, but giving ourselves to God is not the end. It's really just the beginning of this relationship. It's just like the, the king choosing that bride, and, and that was the beginning of something brand new for her and something exciting uh, for both of them. And so it's the beginning of this love relationship. That love relationship is intended to last for eternity. It's intended to grow and to mature as we move forward. But there's many things that come to sabotage that relationship. And uh, this relationship that we have with the Lord, Satan comes and tries to steal and to kill, to destroy, to sabotage and to distract from that relationship. Uh, Satan can come and sow seeds of doubt. He can come and do like he did in the garden where he tries to sow these seeds of mistrust. And in, when that doesn't work, he just comes with all-out lies that uh, tend to take the church from where God wants it to be. Uh, this trust that we are to have in the Lord is a trust that, that goes beyond anything that we can know in this world. And, and Satan knows that without that kind of trust in our relationship with God, that that relationship will weaken, that it will dry up. And so he seeks to do what he can to, uh, to make uh, things different and difficult for us. Uh, just like he did in the Garden of Eden where he came to, uh, to Eve and he spoke those words of mistrust. Surely God didn't say. Surely God didn't mean Surely God is trying to hold back on you the very best that, that you could have. Um, this is going to be a series where he, uh, the, the, the writer John gives us this picture of who God is and the standard by which God will judge us. Uh, he is going to give us some tests as we walk through this book together that we can measure our relationship with God and make sure that it's what God intends for it to be. Um, and so uh, let me just give you a little bit of background on, on kind of who, who wrote this book and what that looks like and what it would be like. Uh, the book was written by, uh, by John, who was one of the apostles that, that, that walked with Jesus, that traveled with Jesus, that ate with Jesus. He was there at the Last Supper with Jesus. He's the one, the Bible says, uh, leaned up against Christ and, and was, was close to him. Peter, James, and John were the three that Jesus seemed to take a little bit farther than the other nine. And so John has a firsthand knowledge of who Jesus is. He is an older man by the time he writes this, uh, this letter. Uh, we're not sure exactly of the timing of it, but uh, most scholars would say it was around 90 AD. So that would be about 60 years past Jesus' death. It's had time for those who, many of those who were alive when Christ was alive to have passed away. And now this new generation is coming up. And this new generation didn't see Jesus. They didn't sit in the crowd and listen to Jesus. And so they are now dependent upon those who were eyewitnesses to tell them who Jesus was and what Jesus did. And so these guys are, are, are growing up now in the church. And, and what has happened is this, 
these false teachers had begun to infiltrate the church and began to share with the church their ideas of who Jesus was and what Jesus must have been like. And, and so John is writing to kind of counter some of that. John is probably in his late 80s uh, when he's writing this letter. It's one of the last things that John will do before he writes the book of Revelation at the very end of his life. He's writing from the town of Ephesus to uh, the churches that are spread out in Asia Minor, which will be modern-day Turkey. And so he's writing this letter to a group of churches, uh, you can tell by the way that he writes it that he is writing it quickly. He's heard of some, some stuff that's going on in the church, some of the false teachings that are out there, and he doesn't waste much time with a salutation. He doesn't waste much time with flowery speech to open this thing up. He just wants to start with Jesus and to call the church back to Jesus. He knows that Jesus is the measuring rod by which all of life is measured. Uh, I, I was thinking about measuring rods, and I was thinking about my ruler that I have here. And, and when I stand at my ruler and I measure myself, I measure five foot ten. That's not near as tall as I wanted to be. I thought I'd be good at about six foot six. I've always thought, man, if I could just be six foot six. First of all, it helps my BMI. <laughs> the taller I am, the more I can weigh, right? So I don't have to go on as many diets. And so I've always wanted to be six foot six, and I just. No matter what I've done, I can't get there. And so I have come up with this idea that I think is going to be a big seller. I'm about to start marketing this thing very, very soon. And so what I've done is I've come up with Rob's ruler. And all you got to do is take a regular ruler and flip it around. And I've put marks where I think they ought to be so that, guess what? I come out at six foot six. This is great. Increases your BMI. You can weigh a little more and not have to feel guilty. It's wonderful. In fact, we've come out with a second one that we're going to start uh, promoting pretty quickly. It's going to go on your tape measure. And so what we're going to do is just remark the marks on your tape measure. And as you pull it out, you can be any size, any height that you want to do. Next month, I plan on marketing the thing that's going to fit on top of your scale in your bathroom. It's a little sticker you just put on there. So when you step on it, you get to write the weight and decide exactly who you are. It's going to be incredible. You want to? Okay, anybody else ready? We'll go ahead and take some pre-orders today. And I'm going to get to retire really, really soon because this. Who does not want to be just a little bit taller? Who does not want the BMI scale to go, you know what? You're perfect. This is it. This is, this is what the, the false teachers in John's day were trying to do. They were trying to change who Jesus was to make them look a little better a little taller, to fit who they wanted to be in their day and in their time. It reminds me of a story that, it's a true story, uh, Thomas Malone told me this story, that one day he was working with uh, Chuck Smith and Chuck's brother, uh, Bob, and Chuck and Bob were building a house together and Thomas was helping them, and so Chuck was up on, on the, hanging from the clouds up here, hanging rafters, and he would measure and he would call out a measurement to Bob, and so Chuck would get up there and he would send his tape measure out and he would measure and he would read that exactly where he needed to be and he'd call it out to Bob and say, Bob, 72 and three-quarter inches. So Bob's on the ground doing all the cutting. He's got the saw. He measures off 72 and three-quarter, puts a mark, cuts the angle, sends it up to Chuck, and every time he sent it up, it was a half-inch short. And Chuck's like, Bob, you're short again. Bob's like, it can't be short. I cut it just right. He says, you don't know how to cut a board. And the two brothers began to fight back and forth about who, who's wrong, Chuck or him. One of them's not reading the tape measure right because Chuck's calling out the measurements and, and Bob is, is, is doing it. So finally, Chuck just gets fed up and says, I'm, give me the saw. And he puts Bob up on the, on, on the rafters and he takes the saw. And so Bob gets up there and Bob measures and calls out a measurement to Chuck. And Chuck takes his tape measure and stretches it out and cuts it and sends it up there. And Bob says, it's a half inch long. And Chuck goes, it can't be wrong. I cut it. He says, it's a half inch long, Chuck. You can't read your tape measure? And they start going back and forth to each other. And Thomas is just sitting there laughing. 
Finally, Chuck gets down and Bob gets down. They stretch out their tape measures together and they realize that one of them is a half inch off. And here you got one guy doing the measure and the other guy doing the cutting. And for half the time, it's too short. The other time, it's a little long. True story. They put them together and their tape measures are a half inch off. They grab out Thomas's tape measure and have to figure out which one's right. And they throw the bad one away and they stick with the good one. True story. But here they are trying to figure out who's right and who's wrong. This church now is being confused by false prophets because they've been taught one thing and now their leaders are coming in and teaching them something completely different. And it's just subtle changes. It's, it's, it's not always the, the big changes that, that get us. It's, it's sometimes the little stuff that, that, that's just not right. And Satan will use those things to confuse and mislead God's people. Some errors are more serious than, than other errors. But think about this. If you sent your kids to school and your kid gets to the high school English class and the high school English teacher doesn't know the difference between an adverb and an adjective, you go, well, that's not right. But it's not life-threatening. But if you send your kid to spend the night at a friend's house and the parents of that friend can can convince your child that just a little dose of fentanyl won't hurt. That can be deadly. But then we take it even a step farther, and that is pastors and preachers and false teachers coming into the church and changing who Jesus was and why Jesus came. That is super serious because that can carry eternal consequences if we don't get Jesus right. If a pastor misled you by preaching a Jesus other than the one presented in the Bible, then you may love the version of Jesus that he gives you, but that version can't save you. And John knew that it was not enough for the church just to believe in any Jesus. They needed to believe in the one true Jesus. So here's John, 60 years after the death of Jesus, one of the final apostles that's still alive. And John says, I hear what's being taught in these churches. And as a pastor, I can't stay quiet. As a pastor, I want to say, guys, let me tell you. Let me give you the firsthand account. I may be one of the last ones that walked closely with Jesus who's still alive. Let me take what I saw, what I heard, what I touched with my hands, and let me tell you who this Jesus really is. Because these guys have, have given you Rob's ruler, but they haven't given you the true picture of who Jesus is. So John's going to dive in. Again, probably in his 80s by now, he writes to these churches that he loves. And and as their pastor, he begins to warn them about these heresies. He begins to paint them a picture of who the true Jesus is. And he decides to combat the lies of the false teachers with his firsthand eyewitness testimony about the one true Jesus. What John is going to share is not hearsay. It's not somebody else's opinion. It's not secondary smoke. It's the real deal. It's his eyewitness account. And so he writes to warn them about these false teachers, but he also writes to anchor them to the one true Jesus. Only the truth could provide them the assurance that every soul longs to have. So if I measure myself by my ruler and I go, man, I'm finally six foot six, this is great. Does that change how tall I am? It makes me feel better. But it doesn't change reality. And when we give people something less than the Jesus of the Scripture, it may make them feel better. 
but it leaves them lost. And it leaves them in a place that they think they're okay, when in reality, they're not. So what are the heresies that John's trying to combat? And who was the perpetrators of this heresy? There was a group called the Gnostics. Uh, In Greek, the word for knowledge is, is gnosko, and they get their name from that. They were a group that believed that they had some kind of secret knowledge that nobody else had. They had insight that that everybody else had missed, that they knew something that nobody else knew. It was a a secret knowledge that only a few people were privy to. It was kind of this exclusive club where the true knowledge was for, for them and for them alone. And the majority of the people they looked at and said, well, you're just not spiritual enough. You ever met people like that? That, that think they have this knowledge that nobody else has, that they live on a plane that's so much higher than the rest of the world. And, and when somebody says to them, hey, I, I, don't, I don't see that, I don't buy that, and they go, well, you're just not there yet. You're just not mature enough like I am. I mean, I walk with Jesus, and he's told me these things. And, 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 and when you walk with Jesus as much as I walk with Jesus, you'll finally get there. That was the Gnostics. They had this secret knowledge. Let me just say to you as a warning that if you... Meet people that make those kind of claims. You should be very wary of those people. The gospel is not something that's hidden. It's not something that's complicated. Scripture says the gospel is something that's so simple that even a child can embrace it. Gnosticism was a philosophical system. And this is the basic core of what they believed. That the spirit was inherently good. And that all matter, physical stuff, was inherently evil. You say, well, that doesn't sound too bad. God is spirit. God's good. We are humans and we're bad. That sounds pretty good, pretty innocent, right? But they took it a step farther. They, they, they said oh, all, uh, that the spirit is inherently good and it's pure and physical matter is inherently evil and so therefore it's impure. But they didn't stop there. They said, well, since the spirit is pure and the flesh is evil... God, who is spirit, could never take on flesh, which is evil. Therefore, Jesus really didn't come in the flesh. He really wasn't the Son of God. The incarnation of Christ would have been impossible because you can't take something that is pure and combine it with something that's impure. God, who is perfect, cannot take on flesh, which is imperfect. And so they would dispute the the incarnation of Christ. They would dispute whether or not Jesus could could be God and still take on flesh. A teaching that Scripture is very, very clear about. And so it left left their, their followers with two options concerning Christ. Either he was a spirit who just appeared to be flesh, but, but wasn't really flesh and blood like you and I. He was a, a spirit, and, and he would appear to people, and, and he would walk in their midst like a ghost would, and they would see him and think that he was real, but he really wasn't real. He wasn't flesh and blood real like you and I. Wasn't actually a human being. If that's true, then he couldn't have physically, literally died on a cross to pay for our sins. Second option you would have would be say, okay, he was a human being, but he was really not God's son. He really didn't come from heaven the way that he says he came from heaven. So either he's a spirit but wasn't flesh, or he was flesh but wasn't really God. And, and either way, it, 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 it racks 
the theology of the atonement. It destroys the, 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 the pure truth of God's word that God took on flesh and dwelt among us. Both outcomes of their view of Christ eliminate the possibility of Jesus being able to save sinners. You say, well, if they eliminate Jesus as the Savior of sinners, then who would be the Savior? And they would step up and say, we are. And our secret knowledge is, is your salvation. So you need to buy in the club. You need to learn the secret handshake. You need to do whatever needs to be done to it. be initiated into our club. Drink the Kool-Aid, they would say, and then you can be one of us. And so salvation, they claim, came through embracing their truth, their philosophical teaching. But John knew that if people put their trust in any Jesus other than the one true Jesus, that they would be left dead in their sins, lost eternally. Same thing is true in our day and time. There are folks who have a huge audience, who have a huge following, that if they present something other than the gospel of Jesus, their crowds may grow bigger and bigger and bigger. But the gathering that they are able to amass will still be a gathering of folks who don't know God. Many will say, well, I believe in God. I mean, I think he's real. There's a God out there. Yeah, I believe that. Or I believe in Jesus. I think he, he really came and he walked on earth. But, but the God that they create is a God other than the one Scripture reveals. And it goes in both extremes. Some people want to say, well, I believe there's a God in heaven, and man, he is rough and tough, and he's just waiting for you to get out of line so he can thump you on the head. And then others on the other side will say, oh, I believe there's a God in heaven, but, but God's just this great big pawpaw who the grandkids can do no wrong. And they change the picture of what the Bible says that God's really like. Or they believe that Jesus is real, but, but you know, he was just a good guy. He was a moral teacher. He gave us some good things that we should try to incorporate into our lives when we can get around to it, and, and we'll be better people because of it. And the God that they believe in, or the Jesus they believe in, is not the one that's revealed in the Bible. It's a God that they create in their own mind to fit their own desires, to give them the good feeling that they are all after. And so if we're not careful and we substitute this false God for the real God, then what we put our faith and our trust in cannot deliver what the Bible says that Jesus came to deliver. To experience the salvation that the Bible promises, one must embrace the God that the Bible presents, not some substitute that man makes up. So what John's going to do in the book of 1 John is John's going to say, I saw the real Jesus, God in the flesh. I heard him speak. I touched him with my own hands. He, you know, here, here's the thing. And John's got a progression. I, 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 I heard him. I saw him. I touched him. And, and some people say, oh, I heard God speak, and you go, yeah, that was just that burrito you ate last night. And others will say, oh, I had a vision, and God showed me. And you go, people hear things, and people say they see things. You don't hear many people walking around saying, I touched it. <laughs> I touched it. It's real. I touched it. And that's what John's saying. He says, not only did I hear it and did I see it, but I touched it. I verified he wasn't just a ghost. He wasn't just a, a, a spirit that, that never took on a body. That's not who Jesus was. I, 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 I saw him. I, I heard him. I touched him. And he says, and I want to tell you all about him. John was all about 
creating authentic believers. And guys, we live in a day and a time where our world needs authentic Christians. Not some who say one thing and then do something different. Not some who, 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 who can get all their theological points in perfect order. But somebody who lives and loves the way Jesus lived and loved. John wants to create this church of authentic believers that lived out an authentic gospel. And in order for that to occur, he had to build that church upon an authentic Christ. And so that's where John begins this short but powerful letter. He begins it with Jesus. Our goal as a church is to build authentic believers. And so we're going to go through this book because it's not enough to just say, I want to give my heart to Jesus. You've got to decide which Jesus you're giving your heart to. And you've got to make sure that you're giving your heart to the real deal or else you're just kind of wasting your time. Now, Jesus has made claims throughout his ministry to be co-equal with God and to be co-eternal with God. And that's led people to say that, that Jesus was either one of three things, okay? And I want you to hang on to these. Jesus was either a liar, trying to confuse people and mislead people. He was a lunatic who really believed that he was what he said he was, but he was just crazy, and he was out there and had a few screws loose. He was a liar, he was a lunatic, or else he was the Lord. Exactly who he said he was. John's going to build upon that kind of a thought that, 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 that we need to look at this and say, hey, who's the liar, who's the lunatic, and who's the Lord? And so he begins with, with Jesus because he's got to be everything centered upon Jesus. Again, John doesn't waste time. This is a letter he is firing off. He doesn't waste time introducing who he is. He doesn't waste time uh, talking about where he's sending this letter. He just starts to write. And he says, we've got to get this to him and get it to him now. And so he starts with Jesus. It's kind of interesting that he starts with, with nouns and pronouns that are neuter. They're neither male nor female. They're just neuter. And people go, why in the world did he do that? He's, he's going to say, that which was from the beginning. Why doesn't he say, he who was from the beginning? And so some, there's been a lot of speculation over why he did that. Some will say, well, was he talking about his message? This message that Jesus preached was from the beginning? Or were they saying Jesus who was preached is from the beginning? And a lot of different scholars will argue different directions. Is he talking here about the message or is he talking here about the man? And the truth is it doesn't matter because you can't separate the message from the man. What Jesus said, Jesus did. Who Jesus claimed to be, he really was. There's no separation, no daylight between the message and the man. And so here's, here, here we go. He's talking, I believe, about Jesus but also about his message. That which was from the beginning. It's co-eternal. Again, from the beginning, meaning from the create any eternity past or is it from the beginning like the book of genesis saying in the beginning when time began or is it from the very beginning of jesus's earthly ministry what is he talking about here when he says the minute the the, the from the beginning he's saying either one because jesus was there at creation Jesus was there before creation, and Jesus was there in the incarnation. So he was there at all three times. And so that which is from the beginning, whatever that beginning might be, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word 
of life. So look at the progression. It is what we have heard. It is what we have seen with our eyes. In other words, not a spiritual vision. I was, I was asleep and, and I saw a vision. That's not what he's saying. I was praying and I saw a vision. No, he's saying we saw it with our eyes. It was a physical being that was here with us. Again, he's trying to combat this idea that Jesus could not be physically present. That if he is God and he is a spirit of God, then, then he cannot be physically present. He is starting now at the very beginning of this letter to counter these arguments that the Gnostics would make. He says, we have heard him. We have seen him with our eyes. We looked upon him. Our eyes looked upon him. And that, that term means to literally to study or to examine or to verify his existence. We walked with him. We, we saw what he did. We didn't just hear the stories about Jesus. We looked upon him. We, we traveled with him. We slept with him. We ate with him. We ministered with him. We did all these things with him. We verified that he was the real deal, that everything he said is what he did. And so we, we, we heard, we saw with our eyes, we looked upon him, we examined him. And finally, he says, we touched him with our hands. He wasn't just a spirit that appeared to be human. He was human. And, and so that which was from the beginning, concerning the word of life, John says, I want to dive in and I want to, to take you to that and, and walk you through that. In the book of John, uh, who was, uh, well, this book was also written by the same John. This was probably written just a little bit before he wrote this letter to the churches, but John is now writing his version of the gospel. He is writing his recount of who Jesus was, and John starts the book of John just like he starts 1 John, and that is he goes back to who Jesus was at the very beginning. Listen to what he says in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. He says, In the beginning, there's that word beginning again, was the word. The Word was with God. Now, when he talks about the Word, he's talking about Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, or Jesus. And Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. And without him not, was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. So John starts off the gospel of John by pointing back to Jesus being there in the beginning. And he says he was the life. Now here in 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, he refers to Jesus as the word of life. He is the word of God that brings life. Verse 2, the life, talking about Jesus, was made manifest. What does that mean, to be made manifest? It's something that had been previously hidden. And now was being made known. It was something that, that was once hidden, but now it is made known to others. And so this Jesus that we're talking about, he said, it was made known. And we have seen it. We testify it. We proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, but was made manifest to us. So he's saying, listen, we want to tell you about this Jesus. Yes, he was, he was co-eternal. But at a point in time, God chose to reveal him to us. He chose to send his only begotten son, that he would be born of a virgin, that he would live in this body that God had given him, and that he would die physically for our sins. And so he was made manifest. He came and was made manifest amongst us. In John chapter 1, verse 14. Uh, we are told that Jesus came and dwelt among us. Chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh, and it dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. 
Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so, again, John is echoing back to to, to 1 John, and he's saying here that that just as, as Jesus came and dwelt among us, so I want to remind you, he says here, that he was manifest among us. We've seen him, we testify, we proclaim him to you. He was with the Father, but he was made manifest to us. He came and lived among us. So he had been hidden previously in heaven, and now he's revealed to us here on earth. He took on flesh, and he dwelt among us. Do you see how he's going straight after the false teachers? Straight after those who had had said, well, Jesus can't be fully God and fully man. It's impossible. Because one is pure and one is impure, and you can't have both those things together. And so they're making an argument. They're they're trying to say you can't combine two things that that are opposites and, and, and put them into one. And John's saying, yeah, you can if you're God. And he did. Notice how many times he's referencing what he saw, what he heard, what he looked upon, what he touched, what he is teaching, what he is proclaiming. Look at the progression. God, Jesus was made manifest. He lived among us. We saw it, and now we testify it, and we proclaim it. We, we give testimony. We, what, what, is, what is testimony? It, it's firsthand account of what you've seen. If you're called to go to court and to testify for somebody, you can't go testify what you think. You can't go testify what somebody else said to you. All you're allowed to testify is what you saw firsthand. And so you're put on the stand. You swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And then what you are allowed to share is just what you saw and what you experienced firsthand. John says that's what we testify. But we do more than that. We proclaim it from the rooftop. These false teachers are telling you it's a secret knowledge, a secret handshake, a secret whatever that you've got to learn and that you've got to be initiated into. He says we're telling you it's not that at all. We stand on the rooftop and we proclaim this Jesus for all the world to hear. We proclaim the eternal life that he offers. He was with the Father, but he was made manifest to us. Look at verse 3. Or look at John 14, 6. He's talking about him being the, the life. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's who Jesus is. He is the Lord. Is he a liar? Is he a lunatic? Or is he the Lord? And John would say, he's not a liar. He spoke the truth. He's not a lunatic. He, he didn't just imagine him being something that he wanted to be. He was real. And as such, he is now Lord of all. Verse 3. That which, here we go, we have seen, which we have heard, which we proclaim also to you. So that you too may have fellowship with us. Why was it important for John to get out the truth? Because apart from that truth, they would not have fellowship with God. And they would not have fellowship with true believers. If I believe in one God, and you believe in another God... It's going to be hard for us to have biblical fellowship, this koinonia. One guy described fellowship as, as two guys in a ship, two fellows in a ship. And if you're in a boat and two guys in a, in a paddle boat or in, 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 a, in, a, in a boat with oars, and one's paddling one way and the other's paddling the other way, guess what happens to that ship, that boat? It just sits in the water and spins. In order for that thing to move forward, both have got to be paddling together in sync. 
If one paddles one way and one paddles the other way, that boat's just going to sit there and turn. And, and that's a good picture of what fellowship is, is for believers to be working together in, in step with each other, that we are to hold to the same truth. If I believe that, 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 that this is a set of truth and you believe that that's a set of truth, then we're not going to come together. That's what we see happening in our country. Two alternate sets of reality. And that's where we're at. So here he's saying, listen, I want you to, to understand that, that, that we have seen this and we have heard it ourselves. We proclaim it to you. Why? So that you and I can be in fellowship with one another. And, and he says, I want you to know that our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son. So it's not just fellowship with man, but it's also fellowship with the Father and with his Son. We want you to be in fellowship, to be in sync with what Christianity teaches, he says. He's sharing, proclaiming the truth about Jesus. It's not some secret that's meant to be kept hidden. But it's a message that's meant to be proclaimed so that all may know it and all may respond. This truth unites us. It doesn't divide us as believers. It unites us with each other and it unites unites us with God and with Jesus. And so here he says, listen, I want you to be united with God and with each other. And that happens when we agree upon who Jesus is. And John says there may not be many people left alive that can tell you we laid eyes on him. We touched him. We listened to him. But John says, I did. And I'll go to my grave proclaiming who Jesus is. And he says in verse 4, now we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. You say, that sounds pretty selfish. (laughs) John's writing so he can be happy. No, John's writing because happiness is going to come when they see the truth and they respond to it. There's a lot of people in our world, guys, that want to walk with Jesus. A lot of people who have joined cults and other things because they want to be a part of something genuine and real. But just because you're sincere doesn't mean you're right. There are people who are sincere, but they are wrong, and they are sincerely wrong. And John's writing to a a group of people who profess to be believers, but they've been misled by this false teaching. And and he's saying, I want you to to, to do these things because my greatest joy is going to be to see you coming back to Jesus and reconnecting with the real Jesus. Because when that happens, you're going to have joy. And when you have joy, then I'm going to experience joy. And John says, "The, the joy will be complete. When you begin to experience the joy of knowing the true Christ and you're united with him and you're united with us. So verse five, this is a message that we have heard from him. In other words, from his lips and we repeat it. We proclaim it to you. This is what Jesus said. And this is what we are saying to you as well. We're speaking it to you, but also to your heart. And what John does here is kind of interesting. He starts with something that the Gnostics who may be listening in, who may be reading this letter, he starts with something that they would go, I I like that. I I can buy that. Look what he says. This is a message that we proclaim to you, that God is light. They're going, there it is. God is spirit. He is pure. He is light. That's who we've been saying God is, guys. That's exactly the one we've been proclaiming to you. And then he says, he is, he is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And, and, and the Gnostics would say, amen, brother, keep preaching. That's what we've been trying to tell you, the Gnostics would say, that, that, that God is spirit, and he is light, he is pure, and there's no darkness, no sin, no nothing in him. That's who he is, and that's who we proclaim. 
Now, how can Jesus be God? He starts with what they would all agree upon, that God is light and in him is no darkness. John's going to use this image of, of darkness and light. And light is walking in fellowship with God, according to the word of God, obeying the commands of God. That's what it means to walk in the light, is to, to be in sync with God and have no sin, no, no darkness in you at all. And so God is the ultimate light. There is no darkness in him at all. We are to walk in the light. We will still have some sin, some things that, 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 that we are trying to work out of our life, the spirit of God's trying to rid us of. But, but God is the ultimate light. He is the one that is right and is pure and there's no darkness in him at all no shadows at all so darkness is living in the absence of light if we were to eliminate all the light in this room it would go dark darkness is the absence of light and so if you're going to walk in the darkness you're going to walk in the absence of light well who is the light he's just told you god so to walk in darkness means to walk in the absence of god to walk in a way that's contrary to the things that God has said he has in store for you. To walk in, in, in absence of the truth of God. That's what I mean. If God is light and, and, and darkness is to, to live in the absence of light, then to walk in darkness is to live apart from God, who is the light. Now, three times John's going to introduce three different arguments here. He's going to say, if we say... <laughs> And he's really quoting what the Gnostics would say. And then he's going to come back and he's going to refute that. So he's going to give us a lie and he's going to come back with the truth. Watch what he says here. If we say we have fellowship with him, but we say that while we walk in darkness, apart from him, (laughs) we lie and we do not practice the truth. He's saying to the Gnostics, okay, you want to be intellectual? You want to, you want to apply logic? Okay, let's do that. God is light. Yeah, okay, so this is, this is light. Okay, and, and, and I'm over here, and I'm going to have fellowship with the light, but I'm going to be over here in darkness. If we say that we have fellowship with him, but we're walking in darkness, you can't have both. It doesn't make logical sense. You're, you're a liar. So watch this. John, John's trying to say, okay, is, is Jesus a liar, a lunatic, or Lord? He said, let me tell you who the liar is. It's those of you who say you can do anything you want to do and still walk with God. That's not reality. Here's what the Gnostics would say that John's trying to refute. The Gnostics would say that our spirit is separate from our flesh. That our spirit is always pure, inherently good. And our flesh is inherently bad. So therefore, our flesh is going to do bad stuff, but that doesn't mean we're bad people. Because we're spirit. And that's really who we are. Our spirit is our soul is who we really are. So so we we can still say that we are good in fellowship with God, but our body's doing weird, nasty, sinful stuff. And you're going, what? This is what they're teaching. That that, that you're split in two. And, And so you can just partake of all the sin you want to partake of. And it won't defile your spirit because that's separate. And so they had kind of a anything goes mentality in the flesh as long as you kept your spirit right with God. So we can say that we're walking with God and yet actually be walking in darkness because my spirit's walking with God even though my body is not. And John says 
There's a Greek word for that. Liar. <laughs> Let's just call it what it is, John says. You're a liar. And you're not practicing truth. So John says, you want to know who the liar is? It's the guy's teaching that kind of stuff. That you, you can walk with Jesus and yet do anything you want to do. Have you heard that in our society today? Yeah. Oh, I'm a Christian. But there's nothing in my life that points to that. I remember several years ago, uh, working with our firemen, one of our firemen came up to me and he says, man, you should have been at our church on Sunday. And I'm like, okay, why? Because my preacher preached an effing good message, man. And I'm like, okay, did you listen? (laughs) You know, I mean, it's like we can say we went, but it doesn't change who we are. And, and, And it's not changing how we react and how we respond to other people. He says those things have to come together. In God, he is light, and there's no darkness. And so if I'm going to be in God, then, then I need to rid myself of the darkness. I need to allow the Holy Spirit, rather, to rid me of the darkness. So John's saying the real liar here is not Jesus. The real liar are these guys fall, uh, spreading this false stuff. Verse 7. But, so he says, here's, here's what we say. But reality is if we walk in the light as he is in the light. So if we walk as he is, in other words, we are imitating him, then we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So what is he saying? If if instead of saying, well, I can can walk over here and do whatever I want to do and still claim to be walking with Jesus, if we would just walk with Jesus, then we'll have fellowship with Jesus, and we'll have fellowship with one another, because that's what believers do. Here we go again, verse 8. If we say, we have no sin then we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. What do you mean saying we have no sin? Well, they're saying, okay, our our bodies may be sinning, but our spirit's not. We don't have any sin. He's saying you've deceived yourself. The truth is not in you. Now, here's what he's saying. (laughs) You've gone from just a liar to a lunatic. You've convinced yourself you're okay when you're not okay. That's a lunatic. You convinced yourself of an alternate reality. And, and, and that's not just a liar who, who knows he's not saying the truth but trying to convince others. But now you're a lunatic. You've self-deceived. You've deceived yourself. And now the truth is not in you. So you know who the real lunatic is? It's not Jesus. It's you. But if, verse 9, we confess our sins. So you can either say you have no sin or you can confess your sins. Then Jesus is faithful and just. To forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So here's what he's saying. You can pretend that you have no sin. You can pretend that, that you've got it all together, that you are a good person, that, that, that you are, are okay before God. And if you try to convince yourself that you're all right and you don't need Jesus as a Savior, then you've deceived yourself. But if you'll confess that you're a sinner, he is faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you. Of all your unrighteousness. So if we stop fooling ourselves and stop saying, I'm okay, I'm fine. And start agreeing with God's measurement, not mine, but God's. Then guess what? He is willing to cleanse us and to forgive us. If I will say, Lord, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. 
then God promises to cleanse me and to forgive me and to make me his child. Here's the truth. Jesus came to save sinners. That's the only person that can be saved is a sinner. And if you and I think we are too good to admit that we are sinners, then we've just taken ourselves out of the picture. Uh, Jesus only saves sinners. And so the perfect, they don't need to apply. Here's the third thing he says. If we say we have not sinned, that we're the light, that, that we're the model of perfection, the model of purity, that we don't need Jesus to save us, then we make Jesus out to be a liar because Jesus said just the opposite. So now we've gone from, 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 from being a, a liar trying to deceive people to a lunatic deceiving ourselves to a person who now is attacking Jesus and saying, you know what, what he said is not true. What, what the gospel that John's preaching is just not accurate. It's a tactic of an enemy is to, to accuse the opponent of the very thing that, that you're guilty of. And so these guys are saying, look, we'll just tell you that you need to listen to us and nobody else because we, we hold the light. It's the same as us saying, you know what, I've, I've got this. I got this. I can take care of myself. I'm not going to go to hell. I, I, I've got a plan. I, I'm a good person. I, I'm deserving. But again, Jesus is the one who came to save sinners. And so if you say that you're not a sinner, then you make him out to be a liar. And his word is not in you. His truth, his light is not in you. And then chapter 2, the first two verses, he says this, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. I'm trying to protect you from from letting your your belief go somewhere that it doesn't need to go. I'm trying to write this to protect you so that you don't depart from the Lord, so that you don't turn away from the Lord, that you don't believe a lie. You won't try to live your life apart from God as the Gnostics are calling you to do. Truth reveals our need. And John says, I'm writing this to show you that we are people that are in need. But not only do we have a need, but we have a Savior who's made provision for us. So if we say we've not sinned, he says, I'm writing that you might not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, one who stands in the gap for us. He stands before the Father. His name is Jesus. He is the righteous one, John says. So you're not going to be perfect. But you can be authentic. You're, you're not going to always get it right. And all those times when you don't get it right, when you're striving to walk with God, but you just blow it, we've got an advocate that steps in in our place. And he is the propitiation of our sin, verse 2 says. Propitiation is a term that we don't use a whole lot. But the word propitiation means he made full payment for our sin. When Jesus died on the cross, he he paid the full price for our sin. And Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. He paid full price for them. And not just for ours, but also for the sin of the whole world. What would the Gnostics say? Well, he, he did it for those of you who've joined the club. And John says, no, no, no. He did it for the sins of the whole world. That whosoever will come may come. Jesus provides full payment 
for all who will put their trust in him. So as we close this part today, let me ask you this question. Are you still trying to justify yourself? Are you still trying to make yourself look like you've got it together and that you've got it all figured out, that you've you've found a way that maybe nobody else has found in order to gain access to heaven? Are you still trying to prove that you're worthy? Are you still trying to work for your salvation? Because the truth of the gospel is this, that none of those things will work. That only Jesus saves. And Jesus only saves sinners. So you've got to get lost before you can get found. You've got to die before you can live. You've got to come to the end of yourself before you're a candidate for Jesus to embrace and to bring into the kingdom. So sometimes we buy the lie that we can get good enough. If I just go to church three weeks out of the month, then that's good enough. If I just give a little money and and help somebody out, then that's good enough. But the reality is we are all sinners, and we need a Savior, and Jesus is that Savior. So we need to be careful what we listen to. Stop lying to ourselves. Simply admit and confess that we are sinners in need of a Savior. And that Jesus, God in the flesh, is that Savior. Your salvation and my salvation is why Jesus came. It's why he lived. It's why he died. In order to save us. So this morning I invite you to admit your need for him. And to determine in your heart that he's not a liar. He's not a lunatic. But he is the Lord. And that we are to live in a relationship with him according to that. It means that we've got to be willing to admit that we have fallen short. We've got to be willing to bring before him our sin. And be willing to allow him to forgive us and to cleanse us of all the unrighteousness. In John chapter 3, close with this passage. John chapter 3, one of the most famous verses of scriptures, John three sixteen. But look at the verses that come after it. John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. To put your trust in anyone other than Jesus is to miss salvation. And this is the judgment. This is the truth, he says. The light has come into the world. That's Jesus. But people love the darkness, their own way, rather than the light. Because their ways were evil. And look at this. Everyone who does wicked hates the light and doesn't want to come into it for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. There's a real fear that if I admit that I'm a sinner, it will somehow make me less of a person. And so everything in our body and in our flesh resists this this acknowledgement that we are sinners. But that's the only way for us to come to Christ. 
And so the world will continue to live in darkness and continue to try to dim the lights. But those who want to be saved will come into the light as he is in the light. And then they will see that everything that they need has been provided by God. And that's what he calls us to do today. So I'm not sure who you're trusting for your salvation. I'm not sure who you're looking to or leaning on in order to to be saved. But I do know this. Anybody other than Jesus, even yourself, to look to anybody other than Jesus is to one day wake up and realize I'm not six foot six. I'm still five foot ten. Who are you putting your trust in today? Have you created your own ruler to make you feel better about yourself? Or you put your faith and your trust in Jesus, the only one that can save you. Let's pray.